0: take your bibles and turn them to the book of genesis genesis chapter 27 genesis 27 <clears throat> well if you think that you come from a weird strange dysfunctional family uh <laughs> you'll know after reading, uh, yeah, after reading this chapter that you're in good company. Uh, one of the things I love about the Bible uh, is its raw and gritty realness. Uh, it doesn't whitewash the people in its pages. You see people as they are, uh, warts and all. Uh, it's not just the villains that are ugly. And so in that sense, we should feel really at home in the pages of the Bible. Uh, if, we, if we feel self-righteous... Uh, When reading about the mistakes of others, you're not reading the text the right way. Uh, James 1, and actually uh, Pastor Jared referred to it just a few moments ago, but James 1 compares God's Word to a mirror. And when you look at a mirror, what do you see? You see you. Uh, And so, uh, as we this morning look into the mirror of God's Word, we should look into it intently, as James one twenty five says. We should look and we should learn and, and see the things in our own hearts that need correction. And I know that sometimes looking in a mirror can be painful. You, you know, you get out of bed after a rough night's sleep and the last thing you want to do is see yourself in a mirror, right? It may be a pretty painful experience for some of us. How much more painful it can be when we look into the mirror of God's Word and we see things there uh, uh, that reflect things about us that we don't like, that make us uncomfortable, things that need to be fixed. But James says, as we do this, we will actually be blessed in the end as we discover where real change needs to happen in our hearts and as we deal with it. So, as we read chapter 27, I want us to resist the temptation to distance ourselves from the characters and actually take a deep look in the mirror and see what God has to say to us about us. But also, uh, even more importantly, there's a very important word in this text today about God. So with that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter 26, the end of chapter 26, starting at verse 34, and then we're going to read all of 27. Word of God says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Berai the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, "'My son,' and he answered, "'Here I am.'" He said, "'Behold, I am old, and do not know the day of my death.'" Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves, and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. "'And I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing.' His mother said to him, "'Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me.' So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious foods such as his father loved.' Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with him in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to him, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the, as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers." And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you. And blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him, yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father. He cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on, on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away." And so your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge this to be your holy and inspired word, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us right now with great power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All (laughs) righty, then. No one really comes, comes out looking good in this passage, do they? Everyone has issues. Uh, and this is, this is one of these texts that is hard to preach in the sense that there is no clear hero here. I think the easiest way for us to navigate this passage is to, to focus on the different characters and situations, and, and we'll weave in some, some application as we go. Just real quick, a little, little scientific or unscientific poll here. Who do you, which character do you feel the most sorry for in this passage? Uh, Isaac? Any hands for Isaac? Nobody feels sorry for Isaac, all right? How about Esau? Anybody feel bad for Esau? We got a merciless crowd here. We got a few, got a few over there. Uh, okay, got a couple, yeah, hand in the back there. How about, anybody feel sorry for Jacob? You got, got one, one or two there. Uh, and uh, the, any, any votes for Rebecca? Man, y'all just hate everybody. all right. <laughs> All right, well, we're going we're gonna to take a look at each one of these, these characters here, and, and the first person I want us to look at is a blind father, a blind father. So the text opens by making note of Isaac's poor eyesight, and this sets us up to more easily understand how he could be so duped. Um, You know, the text doesn't say all all these things clearly, but I also wonder maybe, you know, he he's he's sick, he's kinda delirious, you know, those sorts of things and and that that may may help him also to, to be fooled. But this mention of Isaac's dim eyesight really is a double entendre of sorts because there also is very evident spiritual dimness in him as well, which is a very sad thing. Because Isaac started out very well. Isaac was the miracle child. He was the son of Abraham and Sarah. He was the the miraculous son of promise. He was the one who exercised great faith in Genesis chapter 22 when he was willing to give up his very life at the command of God. Uh, Isaac is the faithful husband that we see in Genesis 25, praying for 20 years in faith for his childless wife. And God heard his prayer, and Esau and Jacob are born. One of the things we learn from Isaac is that you can start well. But if you're not on guard, if you're not vigilant, you can suffer from spiritual decline. And for years, Isaac, has, has his family has been crumbling around him, and he's been too blind to see it. And there's been things going on in his own life, and he's been too blind to see it. And so, Genesis 27 opens to say that when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, "'My son,' and he answered, "'Here I am.'" He said, "'Behold, I am old.'" I do not know the day of my death. So for whatever reason, Isaac is acting like he's close to death, but in truth, he's actually going to live for a few more decades. Verse 3. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, your bow. Go out to the field, hunt game for me. Prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. And here we see another example of something that we discovered back in chapter 25. That And that is Isaac's blind favoritism to Esau uh, over his brother Jacob. If you turn back to to chapter 25, verse 28, we are explicitly told that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Esau is a great hunter, and he brings home really good food. So what, what, what he really loves more than anything else is to satisfy his fleshly cravings for good food. And Esau can provide that, so Esau is my boy. Now we shake our heads at Isaac. But I think you and I often have a more utilitarian view of other people than we'd like to think. We we, we really like people who do things for us, uh, who do things that we like and who make us feel good. And if those things are at the bottom of why we love someone and we favor them over over someone else, then it's not so much that I love them, but it's actually that I love me. You do this for me. You provide something for me that I like, and therefore I'm going to give you the attention and the preference and the favoritism so I can get more of the stuff that I want. That's exactly what Isaac is doing here in his relationship with Esau. I'm not saying that Isaac doesn't have any kind of genuine love for Esau. I'm sure he does. But at the bottom of what is driving Isaac is his lusts and his desires and his appetites to the point where his desires become his God. And the reason I know that they're his God is because Isaac, in his attempt to give Esau the blessing, is an open rebellion against God. And how do I know that? I know that because, if you go back again to Genesis 25, when Rebekah was pregnant with the twins, Jacob and Esau, and they are fighting and struggling against one another in the womb, God gives an oracle concerning the meaning of that fetal conflict. God says in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. In other words, it is the the younger that will have primacy in the family. It's the younger that's going to get the inheritance which is completely contrary to the conventional practice of the day where it was the firstborn who would have dominance and and leadership in the family, and he'd have a double portion of the father's inheritance. God completely turns that on its head, and he says, no, it's going to be the younger. And the younger was Jacob. Now, he was younger only by a few seconds, right? He, He was grabbing on to little baby Esau's heel, already fighting him, already trying to drag him down so that he could be first. And God determined that Jacob, the younger, would receive the inheritance, which in this special family doesn't just mean family leadership and and material inheritance, but also that this person would be the recipient of the great Abrahamic blessing. Uh, the heir of the promises of God that through him would come global salvation as peoples of all nations would be blessed through God's chosen messianic offspring. I don't care how wealthy your family is, there is no other family that has an inheritance like that. Cosmic redemption. That's pretty amazing. But nevertheless, in spite of the oracle of God, And because of Isaac's special, selfish love for Esau, we find in chapter 27, Isaac quite ready to defy God's word because he cares more about his own desires than he does about what God says. And brothers and sisters, that is the absolute essence of sin, where we want what we want, and if God's word gets in the way of what we want, we're going to try to find a way around that. Philippians 3.19 speaks of a people whose God is their belly. Romans 16, 18 speaks of those who do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. We can all be this way, and and we are all this way more often than we think. Are are you this morning um, tempted to do, or, or maybe you're even now engaged in doing things that are contrary to God's word because your feelings and your desires are reigning over what God's word is telling you? If so, you're serving your appetites. And guess what? Those appetites are a rival God to the Lord Jesus Christ. And appetites in this broader sense isn't just about food. It can be all kinds of things. Appetites for respect can drive you into sin. Appetites for sexual pleasure. Appetites to be loved appetites to feel safe and secure. Those appetites can become so large in your life that you will defy God himself to achieve those things. See, those appetites, some of those appetites that you have, some of them that in their proper place can actually be very good things. Uh, Appetites for peace and harmony and relationships, that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But that, that desire can become so large in your life. It can become so godlike uh, that it becomes your master and lord, and so you will sin against the real God to try to achieve the thing that you desperately want. There's been times in my own life where where I've sinned, where I've been manipulative or less than honest, and why? Because I thought that it could help me avoid conflict and bring peace. Now, what is that there? That, that, is, that is my appetite driving me to sin, driving me to disregard God's word. And I can even spiritualize it, by the way, in that, in that moment. Well, I just want peace and harmony. I just love these people. No, actually, what I, I love is me. I love me. I love my own security and my own sense of safety. So here, Isaac stands in open defiance to God's oracle, determined to bless his older son Esau because that's just what he wants. And in this way, we see a warning for God's people. Think about this. Isaac knew so much of God. He knew so much of the the ways of God. Surely some of his earliest memories would have been uh, just of his father Abraham instructing him in God's word, probably sitting on Abraham's knee, listening uh, to, to him talk about the ways of God. Isaac even had God appear to him twice. And yet here... We're, we're now with Isaac, and he's on the brink of spiritual collapse, which goes to show you that, that we can know Scripture, and we can know theology, and we can know a lot of things about God, and we can have all the right answers in here. But if they haven't affected us here, in, in our hearts, because we have other ruling desires in our hearts that are, that are driving us to do the things we do, if you have a besetting sin problem like Isaac... The issue isn't a head problem. Ultimately, it's a heart problem. It's not, a, and so it's not that the solution ultimately is that you need more theology. i all for theology, love theology, I'm a theological nerd. But raw theology will not empower you to obey God. Just, just mere informational head knowledge that's floating around up here is not enough. And I know that because I've seen some of the most wretched and ugly sins come forth from some of the biggest theological eggheads that you would ever meet. Isaac knew a lot. Isaac saw a lot. But as one person wants to put it, Isaac's sensuality is more powerful than his theology you need something deeper than head knowledge. You need to ultimately recognize what the psalmist learned as he prayed in Psalm 119, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Love that verse. Love, love, love that verse. And there it shows us the connection between our obedience to God and our hearts. It's it's as if to say, uh, those who are not obedient are small hearted. And God needs to enlarge our hearts so that it's full of His word to the point where it shapes our desires. And and even the best of Christians need ever bigger hearts so that they might better run in the way of God's commandments. So you may want to shape that verse into a prayer for yourself every day. Every day. So we have in this text a, a blind father. Next, we have a scheming mother. A scheming mother. You know, Isaac's ill motives are all the more evident when you recognize that typically when a dying father is ready to give his final instructions and inheritance, he's going to gather all of his sons around him by the bedside. And it is rather odd that Isaac engages here at a private meeting with his son, with Esau. And it's clear here that Isaac is trying to be secretive because not only does he know the oracle of God, but he also knows his wife. And, 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 while, and he knows that while he favors Esau, we learn back in chapter 25 that Rebekah's favorite is Jacob. But if Isaac thought he could pull a fast one on her, he is wrong. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Probably easier to eavesdrop through tent, flat, tent flaps than through, you know, the kind of walls we have here. And so she catches wind of the plan and concocts her own plan. And she has her son, Jacob, bring her two goats and and prepare a delicious meal for Isaac, such as he loves. Notice she she says that, such as he loves. She knows the way to Isaac's heart is through his stomach because his God is his belly. That's been very clear to Rebecca over the years. How tragic and how sad. Now she's going to manipulate that. She says, take that food, bring it to him so that he may bless you. You. And how does Jacob respond? Well, hang on, mom. It's not right. We we can't do that to dad. He's blind. Shouldn't we at least pray about this? It's not Jacob's response. That's not the Jacob we know. Instead, it's more like, what if I get caught? In other words, Jacob's objections are not on moral grounds, but they're just on consequential grounds. While Esau was the impulsive and emotional son, Jacob is the cool, calculating, and pragmatic one, and he realizes, if I get caught, I won't get a blessing. I'll get a curse. By the way, it is interesting to note that, although written long after the time of Jacob, the law of Moses says in Deuteronomy twenty-seven eighteen, curse be anyone who misleads a blind man. And of course, the Ten Commandments say, honor your father. And so, Moses' original Israelite audience would see what Jacob is about to do here is is an incredibly wicked and incredibly heinous thing. But Jacob doesn't care about the wickedness of it. That's not what bothers him. What bothers him is is whether or not he can get away with it. He says in verse 11, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a smooth man. Jacob's a smooth man, all right. Truer words were never spoken. And so, to to pacify Jacob's concerns, Rebekah is going to have Jacob wear Esau's clothes and some animal skins. This is getting really good. Now, there is no question here that Rebekah is in the wrong, but let's at least give her credit where it is due. She, at the very least, is trying to arrange things in such a way where the outcome will line up with the oracle of God. Isaac is fighting against the oracle. Rebecca does not go that far. She wants the oracle to come true. And so, in that sense, at least, she's not openly rebelling against God's intentions here. But I think some commentators, as I was reading what some different folks had to say, I think some commentators go too far in commending Rebecca as if she just loved God so much that this is what drives her to do what she does. I don't think so. It's not love for God that drives her ultimately, but love for Jacob and, and, and for Rebecca, in, in this moment, God is not her God. Jacob is, and his future security, and her getting what she wants out of all of this. Quick review here. We've talked about this before. What's a God? What's an idol? It's not exclusively something of sticks and stones that you bow down to, but it is instead the thing that captures your heart and controls your desire so much that you are willing to sin to get that thing even a more charitable reading of rebecca's actions don't excuse what she did calvin among the more charitable says that her faith was mixed with an unjust and immoderate zeal that's very charitable and so at best rebecca is trying to accomplish the right thing in the wrong way like isaac she knew the oracle of god in fact god spoke it directly to her the older will serve the younger it's going to happen And so, a better path for Rebecca would have been to simply confront her husband about this. A good and loving wife will confront her husband about sin, and she would have had every right to to do so. But there seems to be something in Rebecca's head that leads her to believe that unless she takes action right now, God will fail to keep His promise. And her lack of trust in God's Word leads her to sin. And when we sin, when we do things our own way instead of God's way, there is always collateral damage. Always collateral damage, because we never sin in a vacuum. Always affects those around us, and those who get hurt the most are going to be those who are the closest to us. And her lack of faith will hurt her husband, wound Esau, and lead her beloved son into sin. You know, the very best thing she could have done for Jacob in that moment was to challenge him to trust in God's promise. Uh, you know, to say something like, oh, I, don't know, I don't know, Jacob, how all this is going to work out, but God's going to make a way, and we're not going to sin. But it's easy in the heat of the moment to justify the means if we think it's going to bring about a good end, but when we go down that path, we're ultimately exalting our own strength and our own resources and our own wisdom that's always, always a futile exercise. I'm reminded of what Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17:5: "Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his own strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord." Notice the correlation there between trusting in the flesh, trusting in your own resources and the heart, turning away from God. As goes your heart, so goes you." Well, Rebecca is very confident in her own resources, and she leaves nothing to chance or providence because in this moment she doesn't believe in either. One writer notes, how absurd Jacob must have looked and felt as his mother placed the steaming meal in his hands. Almost surely Rebecca hovered in the background, gesturing to her ridiculously costumed favorite. But there is a deeper absurdity here, the mother and son's belief that God would not be able to accomplish his own purposes without their help. How better off Rebecca would have been to believe and obey the spirit of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Rebecca thought she was being very wise here, very clever. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Rebecca trusted in herself leaned on our own understanding. And, and what, what does it get her? Well, you might say, well, it got, it got her Jacob's inheritance. <laughs> no, that was already a done deal. But Rebecca will reap devastating temporal consequences for her sin, as we'll consider shortly. And so now the food and clothes and costume are prepared, and now comes the moment of truth, or, or should I say lies, as we come now to a master trickster a master trickster. Verse 18, Jacob goes into his father, says, my father, he says, here I am. Who are you, my son? Now imagine the nerves and the fear of Jacob in that moment. Like his heart must be pounding big time here as he's trying to pull pull this off. And in verse 19, Jacob says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up, eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Here Jacob compounds his sin by dragging God's name into this situation, using God's name in vain. Again, Jacob is pragmatic. Whatever works will do that. But more than that, did you notice Jacob says, the Lord your God, the Lord your God. It will only be later where Jacob will finally identify God as his. Well, while some of Isaac's faculties may be diminished, his hearing is still there, at least somewhat. He says in verse 22, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. I, I can imagine Jacob now trying, to, <clears throat> I am. <clears throat> I'm Esau, gruff, tough hunter. <clears throat> And then he says, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So Isaac still has his doubts, but he's smelling that really good food. And he's driven by his appetites. And so he moves forward with everything and takes the meal. And Jacob also brings him wine, probably lots of wine. Help dull those senses a little more. And after it's all over, Isaac in verse 28 begins to utter the blessing now, what Isaac is about to do here in bestowing the blessing is not just well-wishing. It's not like, well, uh, I hope things, these nice things are gonna happen to you sometime. Instead, this patriarchal blessing carried legal force in regards to the inheritance. And even more importantly, there, there was a mysterious prophetic force in these words where the patriarch is speaking words that are decreeing and predicting future events regarding the son and his descendants. In fact, near the end of Genesis, we're going to see Jacob himself do exactly the same thing with his sons on his deathbed. And this prophetic divine blessing is irrevocable. So, he says in 28, verse 28, may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. So, he's talking about uh, having a fruitful and abundant land. Indeed, the promised land of Canaan is described uh, later on as a, as a land flowing with milk and honey. It's really meant to, to be an echo of what God's people experienced in the Garden of Eden. This abundant, prosperous land. Part of the Abrahamic blessing has to do with a return to an Eden-like situation. Also, we see in verse 29 uh, an expansion of the promise to Abraham that his people would become a great and powerful nation. It says, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. I hope you caught that in particular about be lord over your brothers. Remember God's oracle in chapter 25. What did it say? It said, the older will serve the younger. And yet here Isaac wants to reverse the oracle because in his mind, he's intending Esau to be lord over his brother, over Jacob, and then Isaac utters the very familiar part of the Abrahamic blessing, curse be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. You think about the audacity, the audacity of what Isaac is trying to do here. You know, Jacob gets a lot of press here for his, the fast one that he pulls, but man, I'm putting more of the spotlight on Isaac as far as audacious and blasphemous things here. The original oracle was clear. And so Isaac here is essentially saying, no, God, no. What you have deemed for Jacob will not happen. I will pronounce the blessing on Esau. And Isaac here treats God as if he were merely some sort of force that we can bend to our will and our preferences. You know, the great act of faith and trust that Jesus had in his father was not my will but thine be done and yet often our hearts cry <laughs> for for us is not thy will but mine be done and moses israelite audience who had just been delivered from Egyptian slavery, they knew all about this. The Egyptians worshiped all kinds of gods that they could manipulate and control as long as they plugged in the right formula and the right did the right incantations, said the right words. That's exactly how Isaac is acting here with the utterance of the prophetic blessing. As if it's some mystical evocation that comes from his mouth that will accomplish his will. I mean, who speaks and creates reality? Wow, this is very, very dangerous territory that Isaac is in. Friends, we all face the temptation to be like Isaac. We love the idea of God being all-powerful as long as we control Him. And if we control Him, then who is really Lord? Who is really sovereign? Well, Isaac probably thought he was being sovereign in that moment, probably feeling pretty good about himself. And for now, Jacob probably feels likewise as he makes a hasty retreat from the tent. Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau's brother comes in from his hunting. That was close. Can you imagine what would have happened If, as Jacob is turning to leave the tent, Esau walks in, things would have ended even uglier than they are about to. Because Esau, like everyone else in this story, wants what he wants, and woe to the one who gets in his way. And so, that leads us to a pathetic son, a pathetic son. In chapter 25, Esau, we met Esau, and saw him as one who despises his birthright. He sold it to his brother Jacob over a bowl of red stuff, a bowl of stew. He was hungry. He was an impulsive man. He was, he was driven by his appetites, just like his father. And the glorious spiritual inheritance that came with, with his birthright. And God's global plan to bless the world was meaningless to Esau. He didn't care about that. Esau wanted to deal with God on his own terms. And he spent his whole life stiff-arming God. But now, now as he perceives his father on his deathbed, all of a sudden the blessing becomes quite useful to Esau. And though he sold his birthright to Jacob, Esau now is ready to renege on that agreement. Why? Because he's an impulsive man. He lives in the moment. He wants what he wants. Back then, I was hungry. Went for stew. Right now, dad's about to die. Double inheritance is on the line. I'll go for that now. So Esau comes back, asks his father to arise. Isaac says, who are you? He answered, I'm your your son, your firstborn. Esau, your firstborn. Hmm, as if him being the firstborn is relevant. Surely he knew of God's oracle too. And yet he cares nothing for God's decree. Uh, like everyone else here, he wants what he wants. Verse 33, then Isaac trembled very violently. It's interesting language. He trembled violently. As he realizes what has happened is like an earthquake is rupturing through his body. Kent Hughes writes that the seismic shock that tore through Isaac's body and soul signified the fall of his willful opposition to the Word of God. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse so remarkably observed that before a great work of grace, there must be a great earthquake. Isaac had put his personal love of Esau ahead of the will of God. Down came his idol, and the edifice of willful love collapsed before the shaking power that took hold of him. The arrogant pride which had slyly planned to thwart God toppled to the ground, broken beyond prepare. When Isaac trembled exceedingly, all his desires were shattered." And we see this in Isaac's submissive conclusion in verse 33 where he says, yes, he shall be blessed. Brothers and sisters, the very best thing that God can do for you is smash your idols, even if it means breaking your heart. But God breaks only to rebuild and to rebuild something better, to fill your heart with something better, namely Himself. Verse 34 says that as, uh, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. The, the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, says, He burst into wild and bitter sobbing. Verse 36 Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? He cheated me these two times, took away my birthright. Behold, he's taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him Lord over you. Verse 38 says, Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Esau is not weeping over the spiritual privileges that he lost, but the material privileges, surely. We already know this about Esau. He's materialistic, he's he's worldly, he despises the birthright. He sold it because his God was his belly. He despises the spiritual privileges and, and, and the things of God, which is why right before this story, at the end of chapter 26, the narrator shows Esau marrying Canaanite women, not just one, but two, marrying two Canaanite women, marrying outside of the people of God. Some of you are probably wondering, why, why, is this little, why is demon reading that little thing at the, at the end of, of chapter 26 about Esau marrying these, these two ladies? What's the What's the point? Moses, in sharing that, isn't just giving us historical data. He is marrying into the wicked Canaanite peoples that God is determined to judge. And this mentioning of that in chapter 26 serves to cast a shadow on Esau in chapter 27. And by the way, Isaac is allowing it. He allowed the marriage to happen. Cast a shadow on him, too and further emphasizes Isaac's spiritual decline and apathy as he falls short of his father Abraham, who bent over backwards to make sure that Isaac would not marry a woman of Canaan. But going back to Esau, remember, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but the the book of Hebrews Says that he's a profane and unholy and immoral man with with no regard for spiritual things. And so Esau is not weeping because he lost the spiritual aspects of the blessing. Instead, the author of Hebrews looks back on this incident and portrays Esau as a man who spends his life rejecting God. And then, when he selfishly attempts to grab some of the benefits of God, not God himself, mind you. But certain benefits were told in Hebrews 12, 17. When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau's crying is not true repentance. How do we know that? Because 2 Corinthians 7 10 says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Esau is not repentant, Esau is not broken. Esau is not humbly reflecting over his sin and over his rebellion. Instead, he starts plotting to kill his brother. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, not murder. And in this, Esau is seen to be like wicked Cain in chapter 4, bitter and jealous and murderous and blind to his own sin. Well, in response to Esau's demand for a blessing, all Isaac can do in this moment is give something of an anti-blessing. verse 39, behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall be your dwelling, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. Ah, you shall serve your brother. Isaac here confirms the original oracle in chapter 25. Isaac finally shows himself Submissive to the Lord's plan. He's finally been humbled and broken. But there is a glimmer of hope for Esau's descendants in the end. He says, But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Esau's descendants, the Edomites, for a time became subservient to the Israelite kingdom, but but eventually gained independence. So Esau now begins to plot murder. Rebecca gets wind of the plot. She gets wind of a lot. She's got a little spy network going on. And in verse 43, she convinces Jacob to flee far away to her brother Laban's house for safety and refuge. And then she thinks, soon this will all blow over, and I'll send for you. you go away for a little while, send for you, you come back. She says, why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? She doesn't want to lose either of her kids. That's exactly what's going to happen. Rebecca already I can imagine had a weakened relationship with Esau due to her favoritism of Jacob, but I can only imagine this made it worse. And eventually Esau goes on. He moves. He leaves. He settles uh, on Mount Sire, in that area. And and little does Rebecca know, this brief sending away of her favorite son turns into a 20-year exile of Jacob from home. 20 years. 20 years of hard labor. 20 years of hard lessons you think Jacob is a smooth man, wait until you meet his uncle Laban. And worse, Jacob and Rebecca will never see each other again. She will die before he returns home. She's never going to see him, never going to see the grandkids. And all of this comes about due to her plotting and scheming. Well, in this moment, Rebecca is unaware of those consequences. She's just trying to save her son's life. And she cleverly uses Esau's marriage to heathen Canaanite women as a means of convincing her husband to send Jacob back to their homeland to find a more suitable wife for him. I'm sick of these Hittite women. She's kind of planting little seeds there in, in Isaac's mind. Ultimately, I place the blame on Isaac as the spiritual leader of the household. He set the tone He laid the foundation. He followed his appetites, going for whatever he wants, irrespective of God's will and God's ways. And everyone, his wife, Jacob, Esau, everyone follows in his footsteps. Husbands, take note. Your spiritual leadership in the home, or a lack thereof, is a big deal. So we conclude a sad story. There's a lot of bad here. seems to be no heroes here. But there is something good here. I think it's actually the main point of the text, and the only reason I've waited this long to share it is because this point shines all the more brightly against the dark backdrop of everything else that we've seen in this chapter, and that is a reigning God. That's the final thing I want us to see in this text, a reigning God. The main point of this story is that the Lord's purposes will stand. Period. Period. I like how one writer puts it as he speaks of the invincible determination of God to keep his word despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of his people. I really like that. There's a lot of bad things happening in Genesis 27. A lot of bad things being done by bad people. Isaac tries to counter God's purposes. Rebecca tries to force things to happen in a sinful way. Jacob, since day one, has demonstrated himself as unworthy of the promises of his, uh, uh, and, his, and his brother, Esau, until the last minute, could not care less about the blessing. God has hitched His plans to redeem the cosmos. He has hitched those glorious plans to the wagon of a totally messed up, sinful, dysfunctional family full of people that are just as sinful and messed up as you and me. And looking at it from human terms, I'm thinking, great, these people are gonna botch it. And yet, God botches nothing, God knows exactly what He's doing, and no one's sin. No one's unfaithfulness, no one's indifference, no one's human stupidity ruins what God wants to do because his purposes will stand. So he is not some Egyptian deity after all that you can place on your mantelpiece. And if you punch in the right formula, he does what you say. And folks, you don't want a God like that. You want a God who's in the heavens and does everything that he pleases because he knows what's best, and guess what, you don't. The sins of this family don't get in the way of God's plans. None of this excuses the, the sins, but it should give us confidence and hope in a God that reigns in spite of us. Maybe you feel bad because you've messed up so many times, and, and or maybe your family is far from perfect, and and, and you know we may still suffer temporal consequences for sin, but that sin will never derail God's good purposes for His people. They'll never derail God's good purposes for you. Isn't it good that His his purposes don't hinge on your ability to get it right? The good things... The good purposes that God has for His people, that He has for you, will come to pass. I'm reminded of those great words that Paul shared with Timothy, 2 Timothy Timothy 2.11. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. Now, you have some that actually deny Him, like Esau. Those... Those people who deny him ultimately will be denied by God and shut out from his blessing. But there will be others like Isaac and Rebecca, like you, Christian brother, like you, Christian sister, who will sometimes demonstrate remarkable faithlessness, and yet God keeps on being faithful to you and keeps on keeping his promises because he can't deny himself. But it gets even more amazing. Because God accomplishes his will not only in spite of, but actually through the wayward actions of of people, as he is sovereignly and sinlessly employing even man's sin towards his holy purposes. It's exactly what you see happening in Genesis 27. Isaac sinned against God, tried to go against God, but in the trying, he actually unwittingly accomplishes the purposes of God. That's how good and wise God is. I mean, think about it. Even when you try to, try to, even the things that you try to do against God ends up fulfilling His ultimate design. You can't beat this God. So it's not that God is technically sovereign and God sometimes temporarily steps off the throne so that man's free will can take, take his place and then after we mess things up, then God puts himself back on the throne and cleans up our messes. No, no, no. God is always reigning. And, and how encouraging that is when we, when we think about the dark and evil world that we live in. Do you think about all the things that are going on today that are getting you upset and frustrated and scared? You turn on the news, and you get discouraged. You get angry. You get afraid. And yet God actually reigns. And so right now, in in the midst of what you're going through, hear these words from your God, from the prophet Isaiah. He says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you realize that that verse is true in America in 2020 during COVID-19? During whatever you're worried about in regards to the virus— And during a time of political unrest and burning cities and during the upheaval that's going on in your own life right now, that all is true. You see, it's not just that these truths are for what's happening around the globe on a macro scale, but also for the things that are shaking your little world today and believing that and embracing that and getting that truth into your heart, that makes all the difference in the world. God is good, and His purposes will stand. And we can trust Him even when things seem darkest. Whether, whether it's the darkness of Genesis 27, the darkness in our world, the darkness in our own lives, and, of course, the best example of God reigning, no matter how dark things, things seem, is the cross, So the early believers prayed in Acts 4, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You think about that. The darkest thing that has ever happened, the conspiring against and the murder of Jesus Christ, was not a sign that God was off the throne, not reigning. He was actually in charge all along. They tried to fight against God, and they ended up instead being his lackey, doing what his hand and plan predestined to take place, because God reigns, and his purposes will stand. So, if you're a believer, and I'm bringing this for a landing, if you're a believer, be encouraged be encouraged. God is working in your life, and no one sins. Not even your own will derail His very good purposes for you, even if that's painful and hard to see right now. If you're an unbeliever, know that if you continue to deny God as Esau did, you will be denied and shut out from the fullness of God's blessing. To fight against God is futile. And so the call for you today is to stop trying to be your own Lord. Repent. Turn away from your rebellion against God and receive Jesus' death on the cross as payment for your sins so that you may be made right with God. This forgiveness, this renewed relationship with God, and the promise of a future home with Him in heaven forever is the great blessing that God was determined to bring through a dysfunctional little family in Genesis 27, and He brought it. So will you receive it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word that you had for us today. There are no accidents. You reign, and so through your providence, this is exactly the word that you wanted my brothers and sisters to hear this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to take these truths to heart. First, Father, I pray that you would would help us in the sense that we would learn the lessons uh, that, that we see in chapter 27 in the lives of the, of the characters in the story. Father, God, smash the idols of our hearts. Enlarge our hearts so that we may run in the way of your commandments and bend our desires towards you and your will. And Father, I also pray that you would help us to take courage and comfort in the fact that you reign in the the big world out there, and in the little world, in our own lives. Let your control and your sovereign rulership be the soft pillow that we can lay our heads down on tonight and experience peace. Because it's not just that you're in control, but it's also that you love us. And we thank you for that great love that was most clearly demonstrated through the sacrifice of your Son. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen.